Excuse me, could you tell me how to get to the medical school? I'm supposed to be doing a lecture in about 20 minutes and my driver's a bit lost. You go straight ahead and uh, you make the left over the bridge. That's a lovely accent you have. New Jersey? Austria. Austria? <laughs> well then, <laughs> good day, mate. <laughs> Let's put another shrimp on the barbie. Let's not. Broadcasting live and direct from the rolling red hills on the outskirts of Kingston, Jamaica, from a magical place at the intersection of words, sound, and power. The red light is on. Your dial is set. The frequency in tune to the Rootsland podcast. Stories that are music to your ears. By the end of 1994, Jim Carrey had become one of the biggest movie stars in the world. Graduating from his role as a bit player in the Fox TV series In Living Color, to starring in an unprecedented three breakout films in one year, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, The Mask, and the 1994 Christmas blockbuster Dumb and Dumber, the first movie written and directed by the Farrelly brothers, who would go on to become Academy Award-winning directors. During the opening credits of the film, an up-tempo raga dancehall tune with a retro 60s vibe plays behind a montage of the film's main characters, Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels, as they go about their mundane daily chores. One is a bumbling chauffeur, and the other is a mobile dog groomer. The song playing is Boom Shakalak, chatted in gruff-voiced patois by British singer-songwriter DJ Apache Indian. Stephen Kapoor was born in Birmingham, England, to Indian parents in the ethnically diverse community of Handsworth, made up of East Indian, African, and Caribbean immigrants, and home to reggae rockers Steel Pulse. It was there that young Stephen developed his love for reggae and dancehall, and as a teen, he grew his dreadlocks and worked with local sound systems, just so he could be around Jamaican music and culture. In the 1980s, Steve Kapoor started performing and took on the persona DJ Apache Indian. His name, an homage to the lyrically nimble Jamaican badman MC, Supercat, whose family, from Kingston's Cockburn Pen Garrison, also had East Indian roots. Descendants of the indentured servants that came to the island to harvest sugarcane, Apache Indian worked nonstop to promote himself. With the good looks and swagger of a Bollywood movie star, he hustled his hybrid musical style of dancehall and bangra from the streets of Birmingham to the hallowed offices of Island Records in London, where he was able to secure a deal with Mango, a division of the UK-based independent record label. Island was founded by Chris Blackwell, the music executive responsible for signing the original Whalers, Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, and Bunny Livingston. In a famed meeting on the roof of his island headquarters in London, he gave the young group £10,000 to record their first album for Island, Catch a Fire, all on just a handshake. Armed with his newly inked deal, 
Apache Indian flew to Kingston, Jamaica, to record his debut album with reggae's prolific production duo, Sly Dunbar and Robbie Shakespeare, and also to work with engineer extraordinaire Bobby Digital Dixon. With the weight and gravitas of that authentic yard sound, his music bubbled back in London and boomed at the Birmingham street dances, where he was a hometown hero. But it wasn't until his follow-up record, also recorded in Kingston, that Apache was able to break through to a mainstream UK audience. Boom Shakalak climbed all the way to number five on the British pop charts. It connected with the perfect cross-section of the Caribbean diaspora, 90s club kids, and the teenage rebels of UK's large Indian community. Described by critics as jovial and bouncy, when the Farrelly brothers heard it, they knew it was the perfect song for the opening scene of their film. It had just the right tone, the right tempo, and set the right mood for the rest of the movie. So you'll pick me up tonight at 7.45? Oh, well, no, I got a few things to, to take care of first, but what, why don't we make it quarter to eight? <laughs> Stop it. Okay, 7.45. The 1990s were the heyday of the music video channel MTV and shameless cross-promotions between the record companies and movie studios. It was the era when a catchy song, stylish video, and charismatic singer could take a song from a hit movie and parlay it all the way up to the top of the pop charts. Stephen Kapoor, the upcoming British chart topper, son of Indian immigrants seeking a better life in the UK, was on the threshold of becoming a major US star with the opening song in a number one box office smash and about to be featured on a hit soundtrack, there was virtually nothing that the record company could do to screw this one up. But then again, the movie's title was Dumb and Dumber. You know, Lloyd, just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this, like this, like this, like this, like this. Like you see, Apache Indian was signed to Mango, a division of Island Records. And what was typical in the world of Hollywood backroom deals, the rights to the soundtrack for the film had already been sold to RCA Records before the movie was even finished, probably to help raise capital for the filming. And although the Farrelly brothers fought to keep Apache Indian song Boom Shakalak in the opening credits, the directors didn't have the power to decide what songs would actually appear on the film's soundtrack or used to promote the movie. That was designated to RCA Records when they acquired the rights to the release. Regardless of the Farrelly's wishes or the street buzz of the Apache Indian song, RCA was not going to spend time, money, or energy on a singer or song that was not signed exclusively to their label. Originally, they were just part of a multi-tiered marketing blitz to promote a film. But movie soundtracks had become a profitable cottage industry for themselves, generating millions of dollars in revenue for the label, and also could be a gateway to help break out new musical talent. This was an opportunity that would not be squandered, especially since the executive producer for the album was the reigning king of movie soundtracks. Super producer Ron Fair's credits included the soundtracks for the films Pretty Woman, White Man Can't Jump, and Reality Bites, an album that yielded two hit songs in 1994, including the California hippie reggae band Big Mountain and their laid-back reggae cover 
of Peter Frampton's Baby I Love Your Way. Hollywood had a formula that worked, and my guess is at the time, that didn't include the brown-skinned son of Indian immigrants from the UK, signed to the competition. And that created a dilemma for the suits at RCA. So the geniuses at the label came up with a solution. It was a half-baked idea, but it just might work. What if they could find someone to go into the studio and record a song that sounds just like Boom Shakalak? And then they can release that song as a single for the soundtrack. After all, it is very ethnic-sounding. And most American audiences couldn't tell the difference between two dancehall songs anyway. Could they? I mean, who would even know? And what if they can find an American kid who sounded like a Jamaican to sing it? Even better, a good-looking white kid? Maybe with dread? Well, it was a long shot. But this was Hollywood. Yo, Harris, can you get that? Harris? Ah, never mind. Hello, Armor Heights. Yo, Henry K. What's going on? Willie One Blood. What's going on, brother? What's going on, gangster? Everything's good, man. Yeah. How's Harris? Harris is right here. What's going on? Make sure you head him up for me. Yo, it's Willie. Yeah, I really want to see the way you want. Anyway, rude boy, are you sitting down? All right. I have some wicked news. All right, I don't need to sit down. What's the news? I really miss all those sweet Jamaican oh, girls. Girl. Enough of the girls. What about the What about the news, Willie? What's RCA what's Records loved Whiny Whiny. They should have. Came out great. They're going to sign me to a record deal, man. No flipping way. They're going to sign They're you, bro? They're going to sign me. Oh. Can you believe it? No, I actually can't. I'm shocked. Listen, Henry K., you know where yourself, man. I won't forget about you. Oh, thanks, Willie. That's very comforting. Even though you always rated Brian more oh, than me. please. I know Why you is... did, man. I know Why you Why are you did. worried about Brian? Why are you so jealous of Brian? Come on. Anyway, brethren. You got your deal now. Put a lot of your rhythms together. We got a lot of work to do. All right. I'll get it all together. I'm ready to go. Okay, rude boy. I got to run. I got another call. So we link. See? California, here I come. Enter stage left, William Harbor. Stage name, Willie One Blood. The blonde, dreadlocked, blue-eyed suburban kid from Albany. Chosen by Central Casting as reggae music's next great white superhero. He had the look. He had the ambition. He had the sound. And he had the producer. Me. He was one of my roommates at the house at Armour Heights. And I had been working with him since he came to Jamaica. And now, thanks to his friendship and loyalty and a big flippin' budget from RCA Records. He was taking Henry K. to Hollywood. And I had the chance to produce five songs for his new album, including two remixes for Whiny Whiny, What Really Drives Me Crazy, his new single from the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack. I was originally introduced to Willie One Blood by Brian from Colorado, who invited Willie to come and stay at our house in Armour Heights. I don't think that Brian thought that Willie would never leave, Otherwise, he might not have asked him to come down. Like his friend Brian, Willie grew up in the suburbs, listening to reggae music and dancehall. Boulder was a haven for wealthy suburban slackers, deadheads, hippies, and white rastas that were known as Trustafarians. There were reggae shows and live jams on every street corner, and it was fertile ground for young musicians and singers to cultivate their sound, discover their musical boundaries, if they even had any. Both Brian and Willie, they had the same dream. They wanted to be reggae artists. 
but they had vastly different ways of going about pursuing it. Their contrast in style and attitude was a source of constant friction at the house at Armor Heights. With a friendship that was complex and competitive, Brian's approach to Jamaican music and culture was careful, deliberate. He studied the language and treated the words with delicate respect. Willie was a bit more reckless, a free spirit, more liberal with his use of Jamaican patois, whether on stage or not. Where Brian was low-key and enjoyed quiet time with his girl Sarah, Willie was showy, what Jamaicans called a gallus, who would show up every night to another party, and every party with another different Jamaican model on his arm. At one point, I think he was even dating twins. Perhaps where they differed the most was on their view regarding live performances, especially in Jamaica. For Brian, it was rare. He was more of a perfectionist, wanted his show to be tight and rehearsed. Willie, on the other hand, would take the mic anywhere at any time, from a Kingston nightclub to a friend's backyard barbecue. And once he was on the stage, he wouldn't leave until they threw him off. Sometimes literally, he was able to withstand boos and whistles and ridicule like no one else. But more importantly, he was able to learn from each failure and grow and refine himself as an artist. Willie took his name from a 1989 Junior Reed song, One Blood, which was actually a very savvy marketing idea, kind of a preemptive attack on the criticism that he was a white reggae artist. After all, the song One Blood is about how people of all races, nationalities, and ethnicities are the same inside, and that we all have the same red blood. A play on Bob Marley's concept of one love, one heart, which is the foundation, the central principle of reggae, that people of all races and colors and religions should have the right to pursue whatever they want in life, regardless of where they come from. So when a white kid like Willie or Brian decides they want to be a reggae singer, they're just following the same ideals instilled in them by listening to reggae in the first place. So is that really cultural appropriation? Or is that what reggae music is all about? RCA Records was betting hundreds of thousands of dollars that Willie Oneblood was what reggae was all about. In the fall of 1994, a couple of months before the release of Dumb and Dumber, I was in Manhattan attending Willie's video shoot for his new song, Whiny Whiny, What Really Drives Me Crazy, the new single from the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack. And there was Willie Oneblood getting ready to film. He sat on a golden throne, the theme for the video portraying him as a sultan with a harem of exotic beauties, looking like a dreadlock scarface in a white silk suit and black shirt, he sat surrounded by record execs with clipboards, makeup and wardrobe people, PAs and directors all vying for his attention. This was exactly what he had rehearsed a lifetime for. And I have to admit, I was proud of him. Willie fought hard for this moment. His biggest flaws, his brashness, his cockiness, were also his greatest assets. Whether on the Lower East Side in New York or in Kingston, Jamaica, Willie always knocked on every door, met with every producer, stopped by every radio station, sat down for every interview. He went to all the industry events, the seminars, and workshops, never stopped banging until someone let him in. He knew he was a star. 
He just needed to convince the right person. So when RCA Records chose Willie Oneblood to record that knockoff version of the Apache Indian song, granted, it was a pretty screwed up way to get a foot in the door, but no one handed Willie that deal. He earned his chance. He had been sitting on the bench waiting for his time to get in the game. I know they say that white men can't jump, but Willie leaped high up into the sky to grab that opportunity and make the absolute most of it, even though it didn't last long. I'll always remember that video shoot that day in the city, and not only because of the joy of watching Willie Oneblood soak up his moment in the spotlight, but also because he convinced me and photographer Brian John to dress up in these tacky powder blue and orange vintage tuxedos with matching top hats for the shoot. Apparently, these painfully awful tuxes had been worn by Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels in the movie. Wardrobe needed two stooges to wear them in the video in order to give the illusion that the actual stars were on set. And since none of the high-priced, elite New York male models would be caught dead in public wearing these outfits, we ended up helping out. The only saving grace to how ridiculous we both looked dancing in these gaudy top hats and tails was that they wanted to give the impression that Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels were in the video. So they only flashed to us briefly and never showed our faces. You know, Whiny Whiny was a great song. Had all the elements to be a hit. It contained a sample from the Henry Mancini classic Elephant Walk, one of the most recognizable melodies in all of music. It had an infectious hook and a danceable beat. Even the title Whiny Whiny was lifted from a popular Shabba Ranks tune by the same name. RCA spent a fortune producing that song, filming the video, promoting it to radio, and pushing the single into stores. And for all their effort, Whiny Whiny peaked at number 63 on the top 100 Billboard charts, and then gradually dropped off. Not terrible for an unknown artist, certainly a foundation that RCA Records could build on, right? But what Willie didn't know at the time was that the bean counters and the number crunchers at the label had already done the math. And Willie Oneblood's numbers just didn't add up. They knew early on the song had no legs. And that meant they would just cut their losses and run. Well, not really run, walk. Rather than keep investing in Willie with a follow-up single, they decided to shelve the album, which meant they weren't going to release it. But RCA wouldn't let him out of his contract so quick. They would keep him locked in just long enough for him to lose any buzz generated by the song and throw off the scent of any rival labels looking to sign him, which is standard behavior for these labels. Maybe in the end, the song Whiny Whiny just had too much going for it, was a little too cutesy, too contrived, more like a Hollywood version of a hit than an actual hit, like Boom Shaka Lock. RCA had rolled the dice and came up short, but to them there was always another game, another soundtrack, another artist, but for kids like Willie Oneblood and Apache Indian, they only had one shot at the crown. And neither artist would ever get that kind of opportunity again. I can still see Willie on that golden throne at the video shoot. All the psycho fans blowing smoke up his butt. Convincing him that the ride would last forever. That's just what they do. Then again, in the immortal words of the great Rupert Pupkin. Better to be king for a night than a schmuck for a lifetime. 
It's an old dance, come back again. Run, go tell your friend. It's a brand new design. Watch the girl, them bubbling, whining when them wine. Make sure them not broke them waistline. Lord of mercy. Hi, this is Sia. We'll be back in two weeks with the second half of season six. I want to thank everyone for going to RootslandNation.com and supporting the show. See you soon. <laughs>